Welcome to Frontline Voices, a podcast by the Natural Resources Council of Maine. We, we all, all share, share a love for Maine's environment. Every day, decisions are made that could impact our woods, waters, wildlife, and climate. Join us as we share stories of Mainers working to build healthier communities and protect what makes Maine so special. Zero emission cars and trucks are becoming increasingly popular because they're easier to maintain, save drivers money on gas, and don't pollute our clean air here in Maine. But many prospective buyers of electric vehicles that are trying to go to Maine showrooms are finding that supply can't keep up with demand. That's why in June, uh, NRCM joined with the Conservation Law Foundation and Sierra Club Maine to submit petitions that were signed by more than 300 Mainers to the Department of Environmental Protection asking that Maine adopt stronger clean car and truck standards. This has sparked a months long rulemaking process by the Board of Environmental Protection. That includes an August 17th public hearing that's getting a lot of attention in the news. Now these standards called the Advanced Clean Cars 2 and Advanced Clean Trucks rules would, what they do is they would increase the availability of zero emission cars and trucks in Maine by requiring manufacturers, by encouraging manufacturers to sell more zero emissions vehicles in our states every year starting with the 2027 model year. It's a deliberate approach. So there's gonna be like a review before adopting standards past 2032. And it's all about, you know, giving Mainers more choices on what they can buy. Um, so I'm your Frontline Voices host, Colin Durant. And today I'm really excited to be joined by Scott Vaughn. He's the executive director of the Center for an Ecology-Based Economy. Uh, they're based in Norway, Maine. Scott's a longtime organizer. Uh, who I've followed for a, a long time. And I and he's really built up, he and his team have built a powerful and effective movement in Western Maine, uh, focused on building a resilient and sustainable future. Scott, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Colin. Great to be here. Yeah. So I just wanted to kick off by seeing if you could tell us a little bit about your group, the Center for an Ecology-Based Economy, and your mission, what it's all about. Well, I'd be happy to. Yeah. So um, CB, like you said, we're based out here in Norway, Maine. We're out of Main Street. We've got a storefront. Um, we've had hundreds and hundreds of meetings and events and workshops and stuff in that space over the years. We're, you know, we're kind of embedded right in our with our food co-op. We're part of that Norway downtown revitalization, we'd like to think. Um so when we started, we were really focused on climate action. You know, we thought that if we just started, you know, no one was talking about climate change. So we start, thought if we started raising the, you know, kind of the issue in the community that we could get people interested and we could start, you know, deploying solar power and, um, you know, public transportation and all, all kinds of, you know, ways of decarbonizing our community. Turns out it hasn't been quite that easy. Um, we've shifted our energy a little more towards climate justice from climate mm -hmm. action. We're starting to realize that that justice component is super important. So we kind of worked, reworked our mission a few years ago. So we're still engaging the community in addressing the climate emergency, but it's really about uh, fostering a just transition to a thriving and regenerative economy um, for our area and and beyond of our you know beyond our bioregion. Um, we do. A couple of yearly events. Uh, we do a climate convergence every year. 
this will be our coming up on our fifth one next year that we're starting to plan now. We've been doing an EV expo for nine years. So that's part of, you know, probably why we're talking today because it's yeah. time. And um, now we've combined it with solar. So our solar EV expo is coming up at on the 30th of this month and invite everybody to come out to that and get a chance to drive some cars and stuff. And we're also working on a couple of, we work with the Cooperative Development Institute where we're um, being trained as cooperative developers. And we're working on two co-ops. One is affordable housing co-op and another one on community solar, um, a consumer-owned community solar co-op. And lastly, the thing that we're probably is making us reach this mission of engaging the community the most is we're a service provider for Maine's Community Resilience Partnership, which has given us a, a foot in the door of a lot of local municipalities. We get in front of select boards, we get in front of the community, we get to talk about climate change in, the, in those communities and write them grants to get money in the communities. And, and those conversations are conversations we could only have dreamt of 10 years ago to get into, you know, to, into these towns and talk about climate change. That's incredible. And I just, I've just like blown away by that scope of work you just laid out. It's just amazing. I'm always inspired and love to hear about everything that folks are working on. I always, I'm also, I'm a little, and we're big fans of the community resilience uh, partnership there and the work it's doing in the town, people like you are doing in those towns. I, I'm always curious to hear from our guests and specifically you this time, you know, how you got your start in this work? How, you know, how did you end, end up here? Well, it's a kind of a long journey, Colin. I, I, <laughs> I actually am a photographer. I have, oh, nice. I have a master's degree in photography. And I thought I was going to go down at first, you know, when I started, I thought I would be an artist. I thought I'd be you know, like a photographer, you know, make, make photography as an art form. And then when I went to graduate school, I kind of got involved in in more political activism stuff and spent some time in Central America working for some solidarity organizations as a photographer. That was my entry into that and started to, you know, look at those politics that, that those justice politics around, um, uh, you know, equity for you know people living in these areas where our our you know, economy was was extracting resources and started to sort of see that piece of things. And then um, I kind of realized I didn't really have the stomach for that work. I saw a lot of like, you know, pretty rough stuff mm -hmm. down. I spent a lot of time in Nicaragua and um, right around the revolution. And, um, and I got involved with an organic seed company and I became their photographer. And I started doing a lot of writing for them because I was, you know, in grad school doing a lot of writing. So I, you know, kind of said, hey, your writing sucks. And they said, well, here, write some stuff. And so I started, I was their editor for this big organic seed company for a long time and their photographer. And, and I started interviewing farmers, right? So I'm going, you know, out there to photograph plants and do interviews with these farmers. And then this notion of climate change just kept coming up and mm. how hard it was for them to rely on, you know, this seasonal weather that they had always relied on and losing seed crops to either freezing or, you know, rain when they weren't supposed to have rain. And it was just climate weirding was clearly, uh, you know, and they're in the zeitgeist. And, you know, and meanwhile, I had moved from New Mexico back to Maine and, and realized I was in Norway, Maine, and people just weren't talking about climate change at all. Mm -hmm. And I had, a, I had a kid and I was traveling a lot. And I was like, kids like, you know, daddy, when you're coming home? And I'm like, you know, I'm out in California for two more weeks, you know, traveling. And I'm like, all right, I, we, I think I need to do something locally. And, um, you know, a bunch of us, my neighbors, there's four of us, we all, uh, I said, you know, we got to start talking about climate change around here. Let's start a nonprofit in Norway, Maine. And I love it. 
one of the foolish, most foolish things that we probably could have done from a financial standpoint, but ah. you know, we're still here. So we must've done something right. Oh my God. I love that. It, yeah. A couple of things just come to mind. Like, first of all, you know, I, I think it's so important to emphasize that like we need all sorts of people in the climate movement, right. Working on climate change. Like you entered this as an artist, as a photographer, and now, you know, you and your group are leaders in Western Maine, and it's a great example for, I think, you know, other parts of Maine and other parts of the country. And so, you know, like everybody has it. Like, you know, there's no, you don't have to know the details of clean energy or climate change to get involved. Right. All you have to do is be passionate. And the second thing that just struck to, struck me about what you said is, so there's people working on the land that. Uh, you know, are so close to climate change yeah. and have been so, so, so affected by it. Well, I, I would love to just shift now to the work, what we, what we, what I talked about at the outset, the work that your group has done, and you've done a lot to build infrastructure and support for electric vehicles, for electric cars and trucks in Western Maine. Can you speak a little bit about some of the initiatives you've undertaken to encourage this trans, to encourage and support this transition to zero emission, non-polluting cars and trucks. Absolutely, yeah. It, we kind of came at this a little bit through the back door. We were working with Revision Energy on a on the first community solar farm in Maine, back when we could only have ten off-takers, and they asked if we could help them support that. Um, so we did a, an event at CB to let them come and talk about community solar, which is really intriguing. And as a gift, they gave us a twenty amp EV charger. Guy came in and sat down at the table and we're like, well, what do we do with that thing? Yeah. <laughs> and then Fred Garbo, who was on our advisory board, first EV owner in the state of Maine, said, hey, we should go to the town of Norway and see if they'll let us put that in the square. I'm like, sure. So we did and they did. And I think we had the first public EV charger, free public EV charger in the state. This was about nine years ago, right after we started. And um and then we had an anonymous foundation contact us because they got wind of this and there was, you know, starting to figure out like people were starting to figure out like, how do we get EV chargers, you know, infrastructure in the state so that people would start, you know, adopting the cars. So they just, they funded us for a couple of years, um, both the Climate to Thrive and us all both got funding from this anonymous foundation. And we started installing EV chargers like mad. We put, I think we had 17 plugs in that first couple of years. They gave us a couple of different rounds of funding. Um, so we had chargers from Bethel to Poland, down to Freiburg and up to Buckfield. And some of them are just like single chargers out in remote areas that maybe don't get used a lot, but they could save somebody's life kind of thing. If you're, and I've experienced this, you're out in the winter, all of a sudden you're in a you know blizzard and you're in the snow and your range is dropping. It's nice to have that charger out behind the Buckfield town office to pull in there for an hour and you know get enough to get over the mountain to get home kind of thing. Yeah. We did that. Um, we felt pretty good. They, you know, we kind of ended that program. We had enough chargers around. Downtown Norway, we we buffed it out. We put a few more in a couple of other places. Um, and then just recently, we went at the Efficiency Maine had a round of funding. So we realized that some of the towns were starting to blow back and it was starting to cost them a lot of money. You know, mm -hmm. Norway is partially because of this charging network, partially because one of our board members had a, had a Paris Auto Barn was in town and they were selling EVs, used EVs. Um, we can talk more about that later, but... Um, so we we got a bunch of funding from Efficiency Maine, and we've just installed six dual port 
um, charge point systems that mm -hmm. CB will be operating. We're operating five of them. And so that'll be an income stream. And we got 90% of rebates from Efficiency Maine and the Nature Conservancy. That's so that's huge for us. Now, Norway, downtown Norway's got six chargers right in downtown. Brewery just put in two. South Paris has got a bunch. We've got solar powered ones at the high school. Norway, South Paris, all of our chargers are going to be running on solar power, which is exciting. Incredible. Yeah. So that's been one thing. And the other thing we is our expo. You know, we we put people behind the wheels of EVs constantly. And then Tony Jambro and company up at Paris Auto Barn was scouring the East Coast to get used EVs into the community. Because especially during COVID, you know, the whole EV market was just crashing and manufacturers were just making luxury cars because they didn't have enough parts, didn't have enough chips. So he was getting Chevy bolts and leafs and just bringing them into the community. Some days you go into this parking lot over by our chargers and like there'd be eight EVs and two gas cars there. So it, we really have, you know, adopted and we've, we just sent out this kind of slightly tongue in cheek press release about declaring Western Maine as an EV friendly community because we have more chargers per capita than San Francisco, California. What, what? We, we have, That's awesome. Norway's got 300, like one charger for 384 people or something like we have more chargers per capita in Norway, South Paris than, than most, um, you know, most progressive cities, even though we're- I love you know, that. It's kind of conservative rural area. So that's, you know, that's pretty much been our push on the EV space. Yeah. And just to, you know, caveat here, we don't, we don't see this as the, as the end all solution to our, you know, our transportation climate mm -hmm. debacle. I mean, probably where we live, transportation emissions are 70% of our, our emissions or something. In the state, it's 54. I know where we live, it's more. And I sit and watch pickup trucks go by my windows in, on Main Street all day long, every day. And it's this is not as simple as just putting giant batteries and electric motors in those trucks and having them be driving back and forth all day. There's right. a lot more to be done. But in the meantime, the more we can electrify that fleet, um, the cleaner our air is going to be on Main Street. Um, mm -hmm. And the, you know, the less emissions we're going to be putting out globally. So I love that story. And so for the listeners out there, next time you're heading through, make sure that you plan a stop in Norway to both to charge up and then to stop and, and support a local business there, whether it's the brewery, like Scott mentioned, or there's a ton out there that you can support. So that's so great. Well, I just want to focus a little bit. You mentioned about the uptick, uptick, sorry, of ownership of electric vehicles in and you also talked about just that one anecdote about like getting over the mountain um, in the winter. I'd love to hear any other sort of like anecdotes or lessons learned you've heard from folks specifically about going electric, using an electric vehicle in a more rural part of the state. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, you know, part of us getting all those chargers out there was to get people more comfortable, you know, got to talk about range anxiety. Everybody that's got an EV has had one, especially back in before they were, going two and 300 miles. Um, so, you know, out here, big, big, probably number one thing is like, oh, wintertime. You know, in the wintertime, the range drops dramatically, especially mm -hmm. if you're just pump, if you want to drive it like your gas car, pump heat, drive fast, um, you're going to see a huge, you know, um, loss in range. So that's good. On the positive side, they're awesome in snow. Front wheel drive, you throw some studded tires on that thing. It's low center of gravity. They're heavy from the batteries. They go like, I had a smart for two. I drove for all through COVID for three years. Um, I put 40,000 miles on that car out here in these hills. It only has 66 mile rated range. 
but because of the charging I I had installed <laughs> in the area or CB had, I was able to, I knew where the chargers were and I was, I was good with it, but yeah, yeah, the thing was a, a little beast in the snow. Um, a lot of fun and really super, you know, cheap to run. Um, you know, one of the things, big things out here is we need fast charging. Yeah. Somehow efficiency, efficiency main, and, and I don't know if it's the, uh, the DOT decided that 302 and, and route two, 302 to the south of us, route two to the north would be their quarters for fast charging. And Norway really needs a fast charger. Mm. I mean, a lot of people are coming through or, or even people that live around in town, they like all of a sudden they need to, um, they need to get, you know, to Portland and back and they can't wait for three hours to charge. So, so that's coming hopefully. Um, yeah. yeah, Other than that, I I don't know anybody that's driving electric. That's like, yeah, I'm going to go back to a gas car. Right. It's just not, not happening. I mean, once you get drive it, there's so much. And the other thing is they're just so much more fun to drive. Yeah. That's, I mean, we did this survey of EV owners and Josh was on the podcast when we did it about a year ago. And that's exactly what we heard from EV owners. Um, and of course, I mean, we've talked about this experience. We've talked about all this. There's also enormous health benefits from cleaning up our air with less tailpipe pollution. There was a lung association, American Lung Association report released this year that found that the, a widespread transition to zero emission passenger vehicles like are called for with these stronger standards um, would result in uh, 330 fewer deaths, 3.6 billion in public health benefits across Maine by 2050. Um, well, Scott, you're going to be one of the many individuals and groups that are speaking in support of these stronger standards at that hearing I mentioned. Um, we've talked a lot about EVs, but I didn't know if you wanted to detail sort of the thrust of the message you plan to send about why Mainers need these stronger standards. Like what's your top line message you hope to send to, um, you know, the Bureau of Environmental Protection there? Well, it's, yeah, I mean, that's happening tomorrow. So I haven't really had a chance to think about it too much, but. Uh, <laughs> You're, you've had uh, to respond to requests for podcasts. <laughs> yeah, I'll be, I'll be, yeah, right. Um, I'll, I'll, be, I'll be writing my testimony tonight, but I, I think the big thing for us out here, and you know, we've seen it, is we need affordable EVs to be readily available in our community because people, there's demand. People want to drive EVs. We know that if, you know, we've got Vermont, we've got Massachusetts already signed on to this thing. Mm-hmm. Um, that, that's where the that's where the affordable EVs are going to go because the, the manufacturers need to have numbers in these communities. They need to sell so many cars by a certain time. So they're going to put their affordable cars in the places that have these regulations and they're going to stick to selling the, you know, the pricey luxury models out here. Mm-hmm. Our communities can't afford those. So it's an equity thing for me. I, I want these affordable cars available out here in our communities. Um, so I think that's kind of where I'm going to focus. Um, you know, if, if we let other states, you know, get ahead of us on this, then, then we're going to miss out. Yeah, we're going to get left behind. That's such an important message. And it's important to note that adopting these standards, um, standards like this, it's its nothing new, right? It's part of this decades-long effort Maine and other states have undertaken to make cars more efficient, uh, to save money, lower pollution, make our air healthier. Uh, to date, as you mentioned, seven other states, including Vermont, Massachusetts, New York, have already adopted these stronger clean cars, trucks, clean, clean car and truck standards. Several other states are in the process of adopting them. So like you said, we don't, we don't want those new models, those sort of, as prices go down, those new models be going other places. Uh, Scott, as you said earlier, 
you know, electric vehicles are important uh, for a clean transportation future, but they're, they're, they're not the only solution, right? There's a lot of other things we can do to help people drive less, uh, have access to healthier forms of transportation, like biking, as listeners know, I'm a big fan of e-bikes and biking. So I'd love for you to just speak, you, you introduced that, and I'd love for you now to just speak a little bit about any programs. I know you have a bike share, some e-bikes. Um, any programs that that you've got going on um, that serve around alternative transportation and giving people those better options? Boy, I, I wish I had more, you know, positive things to report, Colin. Um, <laughs> we we like you said, we have a bike share program. You know, we have mm -hmm. people come in all the time in our community that you know, use them for various reasons. Some people just use them for a little recreation, but we definitely get people that come in that take them, and, you know, so they can get to the supermarket instead of the Cumberland Farms. So yep. they can um, go visit their, you know, mother at the uh, elderly housing that's around, you know, it's a little too far to walk. Um, so, so that's, and, and we do get people that work in town that'll come and use them to go get lunch or something, leave their car in the parking lot. And that's great. It's, we love to see those little short trips. Um, you know, we've done a lot of bike, um, like teaching people how to work on bikes and bike safety stuff, mm -hmm. because a big, I think a big problem in Maine is people aren't comfortable on bikes. So we mm -hmm. need more education. I wish they was in like driver's ed. Um, but a couple of us, we work a lot with the Bicycle Coalition of Maine. Yeah, they're fantastic. We've, we've worked on a bike lane between our downtown and our recreation areas, which are at the other end of the lake. We have Roberts Farm Preserve and we have a lake, uh, a beach out on Lake Penasibwasi. So we're really trying to get some safe passage there. A lot of kids riding on that road. People are driving 50 miles an hour. It's kind of a, it's kind of a mess out there. Um, so we're working on that, some tactical urbanism kind of ideas, you know, putting in reflectors on the road, putting in, mm -hmm. you know, cones and signage in the middle of the road where people are coming into town. Um, we, we'd like to be doing more of that stuff. Um, BCM, again, by coalition is really, they're, they're pushing on this tactical urbanism stuff. We're helping our town um, work on redesigning our downtown to be more yeah. bike friendly. So that stuff, um, public transportation is so lacking out here. Um, we're just going to keep scouring for grant funding to see if we can get a regional public transportation. I just could so visualize um, a fleet of electric sprinter vans that with that hold like you know 15 people bike rack on front bike rack on back um, you throw your bike on you take the sprinter van out to you know Lewiston or Portland or Harrison or whatever and you take your bike off and do your stuff and come back on the bus kind of thing um, um, we launched we actually launched a um, bike powered uh, hauling service it's called spoke folks it's a cooperative that now is a standalone cooperative. We have five worker members, worker owners, um, and we haul trash around the town with a with a bikes at work eight foot trailer. And I, to this to to date here, we've we've hauled like you know probably a hundred tons of trash, you know from restaurants and and residents in the community. We take it to the transfer station for them and recycle trash and recycling stuff and composting. Um, so that's you know I think we've reduced a lot of a lot of miles driven there. You know people not yeah. driving to the transfer station, um, and and people seeing bikes on the street doing doing work. Um, we've we've had some e bike rodeos. We've had um, part of our our the solar expo. We have electric bicycles there. We have had every year, and. Yeah. You know, if you think people come back smiling after they drive an EV, wait till they come back after riding a class three e-bike. Um, 
I have a cargo bike that'll haul 300 pounds, uh, yeah, you know, incredible. cargo bike. That's still a blast to ride. You know, it's got a front shock. It's like, goes like mad. It's, but you can throw two kids on the back. You can throw, you know, two bags of fertilizer and ride 10 miles with it. It's, it's awesome. So yeah, the bike thing is huge. Um, but yeah, we need more. Another project we'd love to see is car sharing in our community. Mm-hmm. Like, out behind our out behind CB, there's a big public parking lot in the back there. It's hardly ever used. We'd like to see a solar solar panel, solar canopy with like six EVs that you could just be part of. It's like car share Vermont, but just to have some EVs in the community that you know, so folks don't have to own a car because cars are like it's this huge energy, you know, money sucking thing for especially for young folks that are trying to get their feet on the ground if you live in community you don't really need it that much but at least to have you know to have cars available but you don't have to own it and pay as you know, an option keep. and also another thing with evs they got these batteries in them that are really valuable and they're using all this precious material like lithium and cobalt and they're sitting idle for 23 hours a day so if we can get more car sharing going then at least those batteries are going to be good for a million miles and the, and the cars you know, will, will be using the batteries more and using you know mining less around yeah. uh, around that so there's some of the stuff we're thinking about but the bike thing has been our biggest you know yeah yeah focus well i mean yeah. i love that and some of the projects you ex- you you explain you know a lot of it is helping people envision what's possible right and and starting to get there and yeah, I follow this a lot personally. I'm chair of the bike ped committee here in town. And like, you know, I'm 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 hopeful that we're seeing a little progress at at Main Dot to sort of support more active transportation projects. You mentioned this bike lane, you know, from from town to your recreation area. Like, you know, again, speaking personally, I would love to see DOT provide more support for towns to put in like a separated path there. Yeah. Much absolutely. safer for kids, you know, and in the same want this, Colin. Totally want it. We go into these towns with a community resilience partnership and people are like, yeah, the active transportation. We want an active transportation. The town of Casco, that's their one grant. They had to put all their all their pieces, all their fifty thousand dollars for their grant in one thing, adopting an active transportation policy, a complete streets policy for their town. Wow, that's, that's how, fantastic. Yeah. I mean, it's it's a big deal out here. People are afraid. They're afraid to send their kids out on their bikes, which they we all did when we were kids. Like, hey, go yeah. ride your bike. Now they're like, Yeah, I'm sorry, honey. I'll take you to some safe place to ride. I'll put your bike in the car and take yeah. it somewhere so you can ride it safely because I'm afraid if you go out on the road, you're gonna get run over by somebody, you know, texting. Yeah. Yeah. Like, no, well, again, hopefully it's these grassroots efforts that keep pressuring. It's great to hear you know, that towns are identifying it as a climate solution. The last thing I wanted to touch on is another very cool project that uh, CEBE and the town of Norway just collaborated on and launched. That's that community solar installation on the town's old landfill. As you know, net energy billing and community solar were the subject of a big debate in the legislature this year. Thankfully, we fought back uh, what would have been a really disastrous rollback. Um, and work, yeah, and work toward more productive reforms in net energy billing. And I think one of the things that many people overlooked were the huge benefits and cost savings that projects like the community solar project you did bring to homeowners, bring to towns, bring to local businesses, all cash strapped, right? And so I'd love to hear directly from you a little bit. I'd love for our listeners to hear from you about a little bit about this project um, and how it's going to benefit the people and communities in your region. Well, um, you know, 
full disclosure, this is not like CB didn't didn't develop this project. We were the catalyst for this project. We we married the town and a mm -hmm. solar developer. We created that relationship, and um, and then we went into the community and we subscribed because the, because the town is the biggest off taker. This um, is a commercial solar. It's a I shouldn't say a commercial solar farm. It's a solar farm for um, for businesses. It's it's small and medium general subscribers, so it's not for residential. Um, but we do have a project going for residential, which I'll talk briefly about. Um, so the town had a capped landfill, two acres. We're like, well, what are you going to do with the, what do you do with that landfill? Nothing. We can never do mm -hmm. anything besides mow it. Well, hey, what about if we put solar on there? So we we teamed up with UGE, a solar developer. They came in and said, you know, if you can subscribe this, if you think you can subscribe this to businesses, because the town's only taking 20% of the offtake, then we can, um, you know, we'll build a solar farm out here. And we're like, absolutely, we can make this happen. Honestly, it wasn't that easy. Um, a lot of skepticism, a lot of lack of understanding of net energy billing, but we got enough businesses and, not, and organizations subscribed to it. And um, it took a long time. There was a lot of struggling with CMP to get the thing online. It was part mm. of a lawsuit I think the developer had with, with CMP, which we know can be a hassle here to get stuff on the on the grid. Um, so yeah, we just did a ribbon cutting on that a month or two ago after like a two or three year process. And now we've got, um, it's almost a megawatt of power. We've got local museum on it. We've got the theater up in Bethel. We've got a whole bunch of businesses in downtown Norway on it, the radio station, the restaurant, the brewery, our co-op, our food co-op, which was the initial Von Woodruff from Revision Energy it was with InSource at the time was like, I want to build, you know, a solar farm everywhere where there's a food co-op so we can get food, <laughs> all the food co-ops in Maine on solar because he's a, he was you know a cooperative guy so that was kind of the impetus and um so yeah it's up and running as far as the residential piece goes we're working on a consumer-owned solar cooperative oh cool and we are so close and we just won a hundred thousand dollars from the federal government this energizing rural communities prize to really push this project forward We've got a steering committee. We've got our cooperative bylaws. We've been working directly with um, the Cooperative Development Institute to develop the whole cooperative piece of this. Um, we've got solar developers. We've got a, some installers bidding on this. We've got a site set. Um, we've got a really good business model. Um, we're kind of a little bit in flux with federal tax laws, but we know that we can get this worked out. We've got a lender. We've got the Cooperative Fund of the Northeast that wants to wants to loan us the money to get this off the ground, and we also have some big grants out there to the to the DOE. But you know, we this hundred thousand dollar thing is a prize, but we have a three million dollar grant and to build out the first megawatt and and hire its staff and stuff. So we're really excited about that, and that will be a cooperative where all the savings will go to the off takers. We won't see out of state companies like with what we're seeing now taking the those profits when the electricity rates spike because it's all tied to the standard offer, their, their profits just go through the roof because they're fixed costs on their thing. So our yeah. fixed costs will mean that we'll just adjust that discount so that people are having levelized energy costs for basically you know forever. Um, if the cost of solar installation comes down, that discount will get bigger. If it goes up, it'll it'll get a little less, but I'm sure we can beat beat mm -hmm. out just looking at our business model we can beat out the the big industrial investor owned 
um, community solar companies. So we're really excited about that. Wow, that is super exciting. I can't wait to hear more as that, you know, along your journey and can't wait to um, celebrate with you online or in person. Uh, well, when that, come celebrate when that in person, Colin. Yeah, for sure, come, for come sure. Come celebrate in person on the 30th of September, our solar and EV expo. It's at the high school. Nice. It's where we have our big solar tracker and three EV chargers. There's plenty of other charging in the neighborhood. So jump in your EV, head out to... Oxford County and uh, come come join us for our solar EV expo. And we're, we're going to be talking a lot about both of these projects. So great. We could do a road trip. I know Josh has been Josh from our team has been there before. Well, Scott, talking about hitting the road, I can't thank you enough. And other folks who are going to that hearing in Augusta, I know it's a heavy lift um, to, to make their voice heard and support of these clean standards. And thank you so much for taking time out of your really busy day to join us. The, as I mentioned, the work that you and the group, you know, your entire group at team at Center for Ecology-Based Economy are doing is so inspirational. It's just such a great example of local Mainers coming together to build a healthier, more sustainable future for us all. So thanks for your hard work. Thanks for joining us, Scott. Right back at you, Colin. You guys are doing a great, great job out there. We've been teaming up with NRCM for so long. Um, way back and when we started. So nice. uh, yeah, just great to be in solidarity with you guys and we'll see you tomorrow. Fantastic. Go team. And thanks as always to our listeners for tuning in. Thank you for listening to Maine Environment, Frontline, Frontline Voices. Since 1959, NRCM has been tapping into the power of Maine people, science, and the law to protect and enhance the nature of Maine. To learn more about our work protecting Maine's environment, visit nrcm.org or follow us on social media at NRCM Environment.